Well, go ahead and grab a Bible and open it with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 47, and we'll read through verse 56. Matthew 26, verse 47 through verse 56. Some I've seen on the internet in the last week have asked, are you changing your sermon for Sunday because of all that's gone on in the world? Because of what's gone in Ukraine, what's going on in international politics? And even us in our church, there is much happening that has us burdened today with people who are sick, people in the hospital. And we're burdened by this. And as I was praying and seeking the Lord, I said, no, Lord, you actually had the timing just right. Because this morning I'm going to talk about the arrest of Jesus. And I'm going to focus on the problem of suffering. And how can God be good and yet we endure suffering? Don't have any need to change the sermon this morning. How can God still be in control, yet we still endure suffering? How do we see that? And how do we make it through? Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47 and reading through verse 56. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. He says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He cut off the high priest's servant, or he, he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will provide he, me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But all this happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we do thank you for the work that you are doing in the Northwest and around the world through Resonate, and we pray that you would continue to work powerfully in their church, and that church, and that work, that many disciples would be made, that many people would be one to Christ. Lord, that their vision would expand and you continue to use them to reach this generation for Christ. There are other burdens that are on our hearts. We pray for the nations. We pray for Renee and Scott. We pray for her healing. We pray that you would move. 
We pray that you would give them the peace that passes all understanding, guarding their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask you to speak to us through this sermon today. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here at the end of this sermon, I do want to encourage you. We're going to end a little bit differently today in that during the time of invitation, we're going to spend a more extended time in prayer because there's much to be praying about. We need to be praying about the situation in Ukraine and we need to be praying for Scott and Renee and we need to be praying for others who are sick as well, others who are suffering. And so at the end of this service, we're not just going to have just a normal invitation. I'm going to invite you to come and let's seek the Lord and let's pray together that the God who holds the nations in His hands, the God who knows the future, the God who we sing about that we say, because I know He holds the future, life is worth the living because He lives. Let's act on that and let's pray. And let's call out to this Lord and this Savior together. Recently, as I was watching an interview on television, the television interview asked an interesting question of a pastor that I think was a, a liberal pastor based upon his answer. And he asked him this question. He said, given the scope of the suffering that is going on in the world today, it leads me to one of two conclusions about God. Either God is all-powerful but not all-loving, or he would have stopped the suffering. Or God is all-loving and wanted to stop the suffering, but is not all-powerful so that he was unable to stop the suffering. God's just doing the best that he can with limited resources. The pastor hemmed and hawed and uhed and for a few moments and then basically concluded, I don't know the answer. It's not really my job to know the answer. My job is really just to con comfort people in times of suffering. But I don't know about you, but I don't find that answer very comforting. <laughs> and I don't find that answer very biblical either. And that's not the answer that I would give in that situation. Not the answer that I would give in the situations that we encounter even today, even on our hearts, even in our souls, the things that burden us so much. I reject that pastor's answer. God is all-powerful, and God is all-loving, and God is all-knowing, and the one who holds the future, holds the present, holds the past, and we can trust him that he is working all things out together for his glory and for our good. We may not understand the world at the moment. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. We know that. We know that is a fact. But what we do not get is a full roadmap of how all things are going to work out between now and the time that Jesus comes back. What we don't know is how all of the story, like every good story, has ups and downs, has struggle, has trial, has difficult roads that we must take. But what we do in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficult paths, in the midst of the trials of this life, what we do in those moments is we trust God. We don't see how you're going to do it at the moment. We don't see what your plan looks like right now at this particular juncture, whether it be on a global stage or in your own heart and soul. You may not understand how it all works out, but 
you trust that God's on the throne, God is sovereign, and He is going to work all of these things out for His glory and for our good. We have to trust in the Lord. The key to understanding human suffering and natural suffering really is twofold. We live in a world that is tainted by sin. Ever since the fall of man, creation has been groaning in rebellion because the people meant to steward creation have been rebelling against God's. We live in a creation that is groaning under the curse, Genesis 3 says. We know things aren't the way that they ought to be. We know things are not yet the way they will be. In fact, we as believers between the cross and the second coming and the new creation, we live between the times. We live between the time when redemption has been secured through the cross and the resurrection of Christ and redemption is made fact in history and in time and forever in eternity. We live between those times and so we live in those days of struggle. We live in those days where we still live in a world that is groaning for Christ to come. The way creation treats man now is a reminder of us of how we have treated God. Rebelling, creation rebelling against the stewards of creation, humanity called to be stewards of creation, and rebelling against us the same way that we as a humanity, as a human race, have rebelled against our God and against our Creator. We chose sin, and one of the things that we reap in this life is is suffering. But there's an even deeper understanding of suffering than that. We know that part of suffering is because we do live in a fallen world. We do live between the times. We live between the already and the not yet. But there's another aspect of suffering. We know that God allows certain evil and awful things to happen for the greater good. We don't always see what the greater good is at that moment, but we have to trust that God is a better writer than we are, and we take the pen and put it in his hand and say, God, in fact, we don't even take the pen and put it in his hand. We recognize the pen is in his hand already. (laughs) And we say, I will trust in you. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I know that you will work this thing out. We know that God allows certain evil and awful things to happen for the greater good. Exhibit A, Jesus, Son of God, creator of the universe, love incarnate in this passage was arrested for crimes he did not commit. And we have put into play within the next few pages From the human perspective, one of the greatest travesties, one of the greatest injustices that has ever been perpetrated. In fact, the greatest injustice that has ever been perpetrated, the crucifixion of the Son of Glory. And yet, at the same time, God is using that very evil to accomplish the greatest good, which is the salvation of humanity, the salvation of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. It's right here in this passage that we meditate on and we gain insight into our own suffering because we have a Savior who has suffered as well. Jesus is, God is ultimately rescuing people from their bondage to sin and suffering, giving them eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. He allows things to happen and even ordains things to happen so that... These things will serve the ultimate good 
that God will receive the greater glory. We don't know how it all works out. We aren't given the whole storyline. That's what faith is all about. We trust God in the midst of the suffering and the struggle. What a better place to look for an answer to the problem of evil and suffering than the crucifixion of Christ. If anyone didn't deserve to suffer, it's Jesus. If anyone didn't deserve this, it's Christ. It is our Savior. And yet Jesus was arrested for crimes he didn't commit and he was executed for our sins. And so for the next few weeks as we approach Easter, I want us to think about the cross and different aspects of the cross. We will actually finish the text before Easter and then we will pause a couple of weeks before Easter and even talk about what is the atonement of Jesus? What did Jesus accomplish for us when he died on the cross for our sins? We'll spend a couple of weeks talking about that, and then when Easter comes, we will press play with Matthew 28 and get on to the resurrection of Christ and finish this great book. But what I want to talk to you about today is four demonstrations of Jesus' lordship at his arrest and how these demonstrations of Jesus' lordship can help us who live in a fallen world full of suffering, how they can inform us and encourage us as we face really confusing things, times of suffering, times of evil in this world. First aspect of Christ's lordship that we see in this passage that gives us, gives us encouragement to face this evil age is this. Number one, savor Christ's supreme courage. Savor Christ's supreme courage. Here in this passage, we see a courageous Savior. We see the courageous King. We see the courageous Christ. There, the Lordship of Christ is displayed in His courage in that we see that He is in sovereign control over these events, but at the same time, man is responsible for their actions. The Bible affirms both realities, that we are responsible and God is sovereign. And the more I think about those two things, the more I get comfortable with mystery. Because I don't feel like I've got to try to figure out how to explain God completely. There are going to be some things about God that will remain mysterious to us. How can we be fully responsible and how can God be sovereign? Bible affirms both and yet there's a mystery to it. We see it in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. It says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God's sovereignty of God. You killed and you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There we have the responsibility of man, both of those together. And here in this passage is Jesus walking directly into the Garden of Gethsemane, exactly to that place where Jesus knew the mob was going to be looking for him in order to arrest him. But Jesus goes anyway, that's courage. That is courageous leadership. You know, even in the past few days, we have seen modeled within the world, on the world stage, courageous leadership. I think about the president of Ukraine and his courageous leadership that he has demonstrated. I love that, that moment when we offered him safe passage out of, out of Ukraine. So you can, you can escape Ukraine if you want. And he, he responded. I love the way he responded. He says, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. <laughs> That's courage. Here in this passage, Jesus could have called for 12 legions of angels to get out of there, but he didn't. 
He didn't because of his courage to face what was ahead of him on that day. The suffering of the Savior. There's a lot of detail behind the passage. We don't have time to get into everything, but I want to point out one thing, one geographical thing that would be you would see if you were there in that garden, if you were walking with Jesus from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you were to walk with Jesus from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, you would have to cross a valley. It was called the Kidron Valley. It was actually a wadi in that day. A wadi is a stream that only flows at certain times of year. This was not the time of year that was the rainy season. This would not be the time of year that the wadi would be flowing. The Kidron Wadi would be flowing. And yet, that night when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, indeed, it was flowing. Because in the temple, right below the altar where they would pour the blood of the sacrifice of the Passover lambs, there was a drain. And this drain where the sacrificial blood would go ended out into the Kidron Valley and would flow from there. That night that Jesus was betrayed in Jerusalem, there were over 200,000 sacrifices. 200,000 lambs that were sacrificed at the Passover. At that moment when Jesus is walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, he did have to pass through the Kidron Valley, and that valley would have been red with the flowing blood of the sacrificial lambs, a reminder of what Jesus was about to do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet with courage, seeing that, Jesus goes forward. Jesus leads them straight to a garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And while Jesus is there, Jesus went there on purpose, the exact place where he knew this mob would come and arrest him. Jesus is in sovereign control right there. Judas arrives with the Roman soldiers. He arrives with the Jewish soldiers. We have the old world united together, Jew and Gentile, united together in one against Jesus. Now, we don't often get the picture in our movies and, and also in our church pageants that we sometimes did in the past of, of, of what the picture is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's really going on here in the Garden of Gethsemane is not Judas and a few soldiers. The number estimated of soldiers that are coming to arrest Jesus is about a thousand men. There's about a thousand people coming to arrest Jesus. Most commentators say about 600 uh, Romans and then 400 from the temple guard, a thousand men coming to arrest the Savior. This is a courageous Savior. They're coming with torches and lanterns and they're coming with clubs and weapons in order to arrest Jesus. And yet in that moment, what they didn't realize is they would not need lanterns to arrest the light of the world. They would not need weapons in order to capture the Prince of Peace because Jesus courageously was giving his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for our souls. Jesus showed supreme courage and sovereign control over the whole situation. He knew all about the coming torture. He knew all about the arrest. He knew all about the all-night trials, the scourging, the crown, the cross. And he knew about the wrath of God that would be placed upon him as the sins of the world were reckoned, were placed on our Savior. And Jesus went anyway. How does this inform us when we face evil times? We serve a courageous Savior that trusts in the sovereignty of God and that God will work all things out for His glory and for our good. So no matter what you may face, 
And no matter what the days hold ahead in Ukraine, no matter what Putin decides to do with his nuclear weapons, no matter how far the U.S. goes away from God, no matter any of these things, we trust with courage that there is a God on the throne of the universe and there has not been one emergency meeting of the Trinity in this entire time. There is not anyone in the Trinity that is biting their fingernails wondering what's going to happen next. Oh no, you can have confidence as a believer and have courage to face tomorrow, to face today even, because you know there is a God on the throne of the universe. He is in charge. He loves you and he is working all things out for his glory and your good. Look to the courageous Christ and find courage to meet whatever trial you may face in this sin-sick, messed-up world. Number two, what else do we see about Jesus in this passage? We see not only his courage, but we see Christ's supreme power. Savor Christ's supreme power. Jesus sees the one who would betray him, and he knows that Judas has been possessed by Satan. Here is an intense spiritual warfare. As Judas comes close to Jesus, think about Jesus looking into the face of the betrayer. This isn't betrayal over the internet. This isn't betrayal over Facebook or over Instagram. This is face-to-face Judas placing a kiss on each cheek of Jesus, greeting with him with the words, Teacher, Rabbi. Notice Judas never once in this gospel has called Jesus Lord. That's an important point. It's a sign of false Christianity when Jesus is not recognized as Lord of your life. Judas comes and gives Jesus this sign of affectionate friendship. And he turns this sign of affectionate friendship that in that culture would be for the closest of friends. And he turns that into a sign of betrayal. Think of the pain that must have caused our Savior to look into the eyes of the betrayer. As much in the pages ahead, in the days ahead, in the hours ahead in the life of Jesus that would cause much pain to his soul. Think about it when he heard the crowds screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. The very crowds in which he had taught, the very crowds which he had done miracles for, the very crowds in which he knew their families, the very crowds in which he had he had done so many incredible wonders in front of the very ones he came to save are then treating him with contempt and derision think of the hatred of the chief priests elders scribes and pharisees those who knew the law the best the ones who should know right there in front of them is the fulfillment of all of this and yet they rejected his entire word and they rejected the incarnate word standing right in front of them that must have given jesus pain it must have pained the heart of Christ to see the Gentiles rejecting him, to see the way Pilate treated him, even though he came to forgive and save. Even as he's hanging on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Judas, Judas must have wounded Jesus more grievously than the others. Because Judas was a disciple and a friend. A close companion. One with whom Jesus unreservedly shared his love. Many of you can relate. Some of you have experienced the pain and the rejection 
of betrayal in your life. You thought the relationship was one thing and it turned out to be another. You know what it is like to be discarded and abandoned and feel that kind of pain living in this world. What we see here in this passage is you have a Savior who understands. You have a Savior who relates. You have a Savior who has been there. It's critical that remember that in this passage, Judas isn't the one that is in control of this situation, though. Jesus is in verse 50, and there's different ways you can translate just verse 50, but one of the ways you can translate verse 50 is this. Jesus looks at Judas and says, Friend, do what you came to do. Who is giving the commands in this passage? There's only one command in this passage, and it comes from two commands. Actually, they come from the lips of Christ. Jesus is in control of the entire situation. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 affirms this. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, Jesus says, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Listen, some of you, as you go through trials and one of the temptations as we walk through evil and suffering, times of struggle in this world, is to doubt the power of God. But here in this passage, we see the power of our Christ, that Jesus is powerful to save. He is powerful to redeem, and he's powerful enough to even work in the midst of an evil, messed up world, even a world in which Satan is at work right there in the passage. Even in that kind of situation, our God is powerful and glorious enough to work all of these things together for his glory and for your good. Here in this passage, we see the courageous Savior. We see the powerful Savior. Thirdly, I want you to see the love of the Savior. In this passage, we see the love of the Savior. Savior, Christ, supreme love. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a demonstration of the love of Jesus. Right before this same passage in the book of John, in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having, check this out, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What we see here when Jesus is being arrested is Jesus doing exactly what he intended to do. He is loving them to the end. How did Jesus demonstrate his love for the disciples in the garden? Think about that. There was a mob of a thousand people standing right there about to arrest. And they only arrest one. You ever thought about that? How does the others get away? They only intended to arrest one because Jesus was arrested in our place. Jesus was tried in our place. Jesus was crucified in our place. This whole episode, this whole passage, this whole chapter and the next, like everything about the life of Jesus is a demonstration of the love of Jesus for us for his disciples for those who trust in him as savior and lord jesus is arrested giving his life in their place have you ever heard of the word vicarious before the word vicarious it's not a word that we use very much 
But it's a very important word. A vicarious is a single word that means this. It means in your place. Jesus vicariously suffered for us. In our place, he was arrested. In our place, he was tried. In our place, he was crucified. He is our representative. He took the penalty that we deserve. Here in this passage, be convinced of Christ's love for you. Jesus was arrested for your sake. And he offers pardon full and free to all who would trust in him as Savior and Lord. And so when you face those evil moments, when it seems like the devil is at work, when it seems like the world is in full rebellion, when it seems like everything that you thought was going to go this way goes that way, in those moments most, you need to be convinced of the courage of our Savior, of the power of our Savior. And not only that, but the courageous, powerful Savior loves you and gave his life to ransom you. Trust in the love of our Christ. I love what the hymn says. The hymn says this about the love of the Savior. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he came to pay our ransom through the saving cross he bore. That is our Savior. Finally is this. Not only should we trust in the courage and the power and the love of Jesus, but fourthly, from this passage, we see the obedience of Christ. In the face of suffering, Christ demonstrated obedience. Savor Christ's supreme obedience. Peter, in this passage, we know it is Peter, not from Matthew. We know John is, or that Matthew is not mentioning Peter in this moment, but we know from the book of John who it is that grabbed the sword. <laughs> it was Peter. <laughs> Let's just be real. We've read the gospel enough to know. We didn't need to know that it was Peter. We knew it was Peter, right? <laughs> Peter grabs the sword, and he cuts off the servant's ear. John tells us his name as well. His name is Malchus. Peter at this moment is thinking, I'm going to prove my worth. I am the Savior's greatest defender. Even as I said at the Last Supper, I will defend the Savior to the end. And yet we see while he has a heart, good heart, uh, he's not that great of a swordsman. <laughs> Aiming for the head, he cuts off his ear. Now there may be reasons for that. Maybe it was a glancing blow. Maybe the guy had a helmet. Maybe Malchus just ducked. We don't really know. <laughs> it's not really the point of the passage. Either way, Jesus wouldn't have any of this. Put away your sword. Put that thing down. Jesus heals the ear of the servant, Luke tells us, sent, caring for this one whom the world would see as insignificant. Jesus tells, put away your sword. Think about it. At this moment, Jesus tells Peter, I can call 12 legions of angels. One legion for every one of his disciples. A legion of angels would have about 6,000 angels. Twelve times 6,000 angels ready at the word of Jesus to storm that field and waylay everybody. And all really was required was one because we read in the Old Testament that there was one time when one single angel destroyed an entire army. And Jesus has at his command 12 legions, 12 times 6,000 of these angels at his command in that moment. But he does not call them. Because in that moment, 
Christ is obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And he willingly lays down his life in obedience to his Father. Jesus was obedient to his Father throughout his life, and Jesus is obedient to his Father in giving his life as a payment for our sins. And how do we follow this Savior in the face of suffering, in the face when you're facing spiritual warfare against the devil, against those times and those trials in your life? What is called for in those moments? Trust in the power of God walk in the courage of God know the love of God and then finally here obey God follow Christ's example and walk in obedience in those very moments when we are tempted to disobey in those moments when it seems like the world's going crazy I'm going to go my way no follow Jesus obey him obey God's word even in those dark hours of your life sometimes we're like Peter, aren't we? We get impulsive. I just, I just want to do something. <laughs> I mean, even if it's wave a sword around, I just want to do something. <laughs> and yet even in those moments, Jesus calls us, simply believe, simply trust, simply obey. Even in the midst of this trial, I'm working something greater, something more glorious, than Peter, you can even understand or imagine right now. One day Peter would understand and would preach it. The day the church was born in the book of Acts when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But this moment he doesn't get it. Jesus is calling us to obedience. Matthew makes one thing abundantly clear in the story. Jesus is not taken against his will. Jesus is willingly giving his life in fulfillment of scripture, in fulfillment of prophecy, in fulfillment of the ages. Jesus is giving his life as the sacrifice for sin, as our courageous, powerful, loving, and obedient Savior. That is our Christ. And I want to encourage you as we finish today. Circumstances at the moment in the world from the macro perspective... And from the micro perspective in your life, it may seem that they're out of control. It may seem that the devil is winning. It may seem that craziness reigns. But here in this passage, we find courage in our God to stand firm in the evil day. To stand firm in the day when it's so confusing we can't seem to see through the fog which way to go next. But in those moments, trust in the sovereign goodness of the courageous, powerful, loving, obedient 